Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, Dada, with your Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back, right in your ear holes to break down everything that happened on WWE's NXT and AEW Dynamite this past Wednesday, and man, what a massive improvement for Wednesday Night Wrestling over the prior week. NXT stepped up with one of the best shows they have done in a long time. We won't even count Halloween Havoc in that conversation. Well, AEW Dynamite rebounded in a massive way from last week's episode, which I know some of you liked, but I personally did not. I found it not very enjoyable. This week, completely different, very much like what AEW gave us. We have a long show with plenty to talk about today. So before we get into it, you guys know the deal. We take care of a little business on this damn podcast. Number one, head on over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love the show. Let other people know how much you love the show. Word of mouth. That is how this thing will grow. I'm not talking about the Ludacris album. I'm talking about you actually telling people that you like the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Send them the link, let them know how to subscribe, and tell them to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That is almost as important as the five-star reviews. The subscriber number is going up. The follower number is inching up. I need those going a little quicker. Hopefully, you all can contribute to that. Now, as I've said numerous times over the last couple of shows, we have a big month coming up in the Getting Over universe. Just wanted to update you guys on a couple things. Number one, I have confirmed a second big interview for the month of December. Very excited to get both of these done. We also have the special 100th episode of Getting Over, which will hit your ear holes early in the month of December. Very excited about that. Now, over the course of this year, you know, since we debuted in March and, and things have been rolling through, there was a period of time where I asked some of you to contribute to the show. I helped me get equipment, uh, pay for some of the hosting, the things I needed to get the podcast off the ground. And those of you who contributed and others of you who wanted to, but kind of missed the window that we did it, I cannot be more thankful. But look, the Silver King screwed up because I asked you guys for that. I said, hey, look, I'm going to do some special things. And I didn't necessarily follow through with those special things in due time. And that's largely because of my job, my life, the weather, uh, some things that are happening nationally. There was a a number of reasons why that was the case. But that is all now finally coming together. The 100th episode of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, I've already said it's going to be special. It is a viewer request, a listener request, something that a couple of you said you wanted on the show. I am going to give you for the 100th episode. Other ideas, other things I've talked about, pay-per-view rewinds, listener chats, uh, you know, you guys coming up with ideas for new spots on the on the podcast. All of that is open and possible. In fact, we are going to do, for the first time ever, a pr- live pre-show audio chat ahead of WWE Survivor Series this Sunday. If you follow us on Twitter, at Getting Overcast, I will send out a link probably on Friday or Saturday, of an app that you can download. It's called Locker Room. And I will be creating a channel within that app, going ahead and doing a pre-show on our own 
for Survivor Series 2020. Right now, looking at probably doing about 30 minutes, but it's really cool. I will be able to host a room. I'll discuss Survivor Series. Anyone who wants to join, you can chat. You can type on your phones and kind of ask questions. We can go through it. Or if you don't want to do that, I can actually call you up to allow you to speak and ask questions live on the air as well. So just gonna be something different that we do. We're gonna give it a shot for Survivor Series, see how it works. And if that does work, then I'm gonna start putting together some of those very special listener Q&As, chats, uh, pay-per-view you know, watch parties, things like that in the near future as we get into the early part of 2021. So thank you all for the patience on it. I haven't had a single person email me and ask me about these things. Hopefully you guys all know, guys and girls all know, the heart is in the right place and I am here to give you exactly what you want when it comes to professional wrestling audio. But on the docket today, and we're actually taping the show a bit later than we normally do, is breaking down WWE NXT and AEW Dynamite. Now, normally on these shows, we don't really get into the minutia of ratings, but while I'm taping it, it turns out ratings are going to pop out just around when we're getting started. So I'm going to talk NXT, and then you know what? I'm going to pause, we'll do a quick little ratings discussion, and then we'll head on over into AEW Dynamite. Now, with NXT, and that's where we're going to start, there's been a couple weeks recently where I've noted it has not really given us a main storyline or a key storyline on the show, which has led to some uneven episodes. This week on NXT, they gave us four key storylines plus one big storyline that took us throughout the entire show. And the show quality itself was off the charts. You know, truly, it was one of their best episodes start to finish of the year, coming off a week that was pretty mediocre. As I said earlier, both NXT and AEW last week didn't really deliver for me, but this week they really both knocked it out of the park. NXT slightly more so due to the insane quality of a couple segments, namely the main event. But this was an exceedingly entertaining episode of NXT. So let's get started with the four main storylines. We'll roll roll through and kind of talk about everything else that went down. Uh, We'll start again with the main event, the NXT Women's Championship, where you had Io Shirai defending against Rhea Ripley. Now, NXT did a fantastic job promoting this as the main event throughout the entire show. We talk about it all the time. Video packages, predictions, etc. I love the presentation of the title match. They made it feel like it was prestigious and significant at the same time. It started with 25 minutes left in the show, not counting the overrun. The one mistake that NXT made was announcing basically that the title match would not be the final segment. Even briefly cutting into it to let people know Finn Balor would be arriving and the champion would talk after the match was over. I like the ploy from a ratings perspective over the final two quarter hours. So I I appreciate the decision making there. But to me, saying that you're going to have a title match and then you're going to have a segment unrelated to the title match afterward, it basically tells you the title's not going to change hands because under no circumstances would you do a title change and then cut off that moment. You just wouldn't do it that way. So that to me gave away the match almost before it even began. That was a disappointment, even though I had a feeling the match was going to go in this direction anyway. Once they got started, though, the action was top tier. Shirai took a header off the ring apron. She got checked out for injury a little bit during a commercial. They did some great work in the turnbuckles with Shirai hitting a German suplex from the second rope. She put like a top top tier, top level wrestling clinic on this whole match. 
and had the momentum offensively for most of it. She worked on Ripley's left arm over and over again. It felt like 10 minutes uh, with inventive hyperextension type of you know moves. Ripley eventually hit a superplex for a two and NXT started piping in the NXT chance and this is awesome chance. Uh, Ripley dominated Shirai then with an inverted Texas Cloverleaf, uh, spun her around, slammed the champion into the mat. Shirai countered the Riptide with an arm bar, held onto it all the way through a slam. Ripley dodged two different Tiger fate kicks, but Shirai hit a third plus a missile dropkick, got a 2.5 count. Uh, Ripley then hit a lariat on Shirai after she landed on her feet after missing a moonsault, but Shirai countered the Riptide this time into a DDT. She then flew through the ropes and hit Ripley with an incredible sunset flip powerbomb through the announce table in an absolutely insane spot. Ripley just broke the 10 count, getting back into the ring. And as soon as she rolled inside, Shirai saw her, caught her with the ACI moonsault for the one, two, three. They shook hands. They hugged afterwards. Folks, I'm just going to tell you, pick your damn adjective. Literally, find any positive ad- adjective that you want to use to describe this match. Morning Woods is what Xavier calls it. It's what I call it. I wish I could curse on this damn podcast. This match was forking incredible. It's as close to five stars as you're going to get from a television match without a huge crowd. Shirai may have proved herself the best women's wrestler in the world in this individual match. She was perfect. Yes, there was the potential injury earlier. Her operation level, her work rate was absolutely perfect. The work rate of the entire match, the psychology, the selling, Ripley was nearly as good as Shirai in every area. And it looks like she has a rocket strap to her to the main roster. We'll talk about that momentarily. But back to Shirai, she was on another level this entire time. That match will be in my final five matches for best women's match of the year. And it has a chance to win it, if we're being honest. Now, I don't even know if we're going to separate women's matches and men's matches. It'll probably just be one category. But if we do break it up, this will be a top five women's match of the year. It deserves all the praise I'm giving it and more. If you are not an NXT watcher, make sure you at least see this main event on the show. So as I said, Ripley was great here. And it looks like she's headed right up to the main roster. They hugged afterward. They were crying. Ripley said a couple things to Io Shirai. So I hope they bring her up. It seems like the right time. And hopefully she makes her debut on Raw. That's where they need her the most. But I think they may end up making her a surprise member of the SmackDown Survivor Series team. That sounds like a fun debut. But Raw is a way better spot for her right now. So we'll see what they end up doing but it seems like it's almost like situational where it's like we have these openings on purpose. We're going to kind of get you one of those spots and let you fill in and go from there. You know, again, Raw needs her more than SmackDown does. Maybe this will be a scenario we're all talking about Bianca Belair winning the Royal Rumble. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's Rhea Ripley winning the Royal Rumble, challenging Asuka or whoever the Raw Women's Champion is at that time. So that is going to be interesting to see develop. And by the way, a lot of you asked me this question about Rhea and her future. So shout outs to Daniel Mason, Brian Owen, Sean McDermott, Jay Mags. There's, I think, three or four others who sent me the same question, and I'm not going to read 18 different DMs of the same question. So yes, I do think that was her final NXT match. Yes, I do think she's getting called up. The only way it's not her final NXT match is something that we'll talk about momentarily. We'll get there. But we, we should move on to the segment that succeeded that match. And that was the return of NXT champion Finn Balor. 
Just as Balor got started talking about his return and the three plates in his jaw, Pat McAfee came out. He ran down all the people they've destroyed recently. The Kings of NXT. I don't even know if that's their official name or not, but I think it is. Uh, They surrounded the ring and McAfee demanded Balor hand over the title. Balor suddenly summoned Undisputed Era and there was a huge, exciting eight-man brawl that ended the show. This was a really high-energy moment and it, it was a great final segment to the show. So I don't want anyone to get me wrong when I criticize them for booking it this way. I'm just, I just felt like it gave away the main event by saying that there's going to be something afterward. So again, a really good moment. Uh, McAfee sold a boot from Adam Cole outside the ring, like absolute death. So like I said, by teasing the men showing up, it was clear to me there would not be a title change in that match. And I do think that's a valid criticism and a legitimate criticism of the booking style. They could have done it at any other point in the entire show, especially considering it was preceded by one of the best television matches of the entire year, any brand, any show, right? Nevertheless, it was a hot segment and they deserve credit for kind of getting the excitement level amped up here. Something else that I didn't like though, if I'm going to be candid, is that after the show went off the air, they had William Regal come out and announce that this would be a War Games match in a social media only moment. Now, I'm okay with the extra social media stuff. You guys know, I talk about it all the time, but some of the things that concern me with WWE is they put some of their best content on social media when that's the stuff that should be on the program. Regal ending the show by screaming, WAH GAMES is something that every NXT fan wants to see. You shouldn't have to go seek it out afterward. So that was a miss, especially considering they did it in a pretty cool way, if I do say. I mean, that's a moment that makes you pop, right? When William Regal says that. So put that on the damn show. Like, what are you doing? Just throwing that up on Twitter and YouTube afterwards. It's so ridiculous. I know it's a nitpick, but I mean, come on, what are we doing here? Uh, with that though, I should mention, they announced NXT TakeOver War Games for December 6th with a, they did a Shotzi Blackheart type of promo for it. It's funny, by the way, that she's become like the de facto special event promoter now, but it's also really good for her career long-term that they see that ability in her where they think that, her promoting something will attract people to actually watch it. And I'm excited for War Games. It seems like we're getting a men's and a women's match this year and they did not waste any time building it. In fact, the truth is they've been building the men's storyline for six weeks ever since TakeOver 31. And for the women, it's been in effect over the last couple of weeks, I'd say definitely since Halloween Havoc, maybe even slightly before it as well. So again, Credit where it's due, I'm excited for war games. It just, it feels like, look, if you're going to do it, why miss on these little, some may say trivial, but I don't, things that matter, you know, give us the moments that fans want to see. Now, we talked about basically the men's war games, four on four, Undisputed Era against the Kings of NXT. Again, I don't know if that's their name, but nevertheless, group versus group, faction versus faction. For the women, they're doing it in a more traditional way where you have to build teams to get there. So we had Candice LeRae and Indy Hartwell defeat Caden Carter and Casey Catanzaro in a women's tag team match. This was a decent match with LeRae hitting Wicked's stepsister for the win. I do wish the KCs could get some wins on the show, but 
you have to put over the brand new duo in Larray and Hartwell. So I, I understand the spot. I presume, by the way, that they're saving the reveal for the other screen mask for a moment where Johnny Gargano might need him. And, you know, the assumption is that it's Austin Theory. So I think that they're going to double that up at some point sooner than later, unless Theory's injured and not there and they've gone off of it. I'm not exactly sure what the storyline is, but it does seem like they were going in that direction where each of them would kind of take someone under their wing. There was a second women's tag team match. This one blew away the first one. Ember Moon and Tony Storm defeating Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez. This was the best promo, by the way, that I can remember Ember Moon cutting in front of a live mic, and she did it before the match. It felt really natural. Uh, Coupled with her look and her new music, the character refresh is strong. Very excited for what she's going to do going forward. Moon and Storm both looked great on their hot tags. Moon hit a really cool springboard code breaker. Uh, Storm went crazy with a bunch of German suplexes. The referee got distracted at one point, and Gonzalez drilled Storm into the ring post but she caught Dakota Kai for an inside cradle and got the win. It was a really good moment, by the way, for Tony Storm as she finally got that big victory that I've been waiting to see. She's been back for like two or three weeks now, and I keep waiting for that one big moment and pitting Dakota Kai. Yeah, it's a big moment, even in a tag team match. Uh, so, you know, I'm just kind of excited to see where they're going. Like, I don't know who the number one contender is going to be for Io Shirai. Is it going to be any four of these women? Are they going to go in a different direction and pull someone out that we're not really thinking about? We'll see going forward. After the match, uh, LeRae and Hartwell attacked the faces, Moon and Storm, which clearly sets up the War Games match with Dakota Kai, Raquel Gonzalez, Candice LeRae, and Indy Hartwell going up against Shotzi Blackheart, Ember Moon, Tony Storm, and one other woman. So the question is, who is that fourth woman going to be? I thought it could be a returning Mercedes Martinez, but she tweeted out, that she's staying away from wrestling for now because she has asthma. I believe her son is immunocompromised. So a reminder, please wear a mask and keep your distance. Uh, But it would be cool if it was Casey Cantazaro, in my opinion, doing some crazy shit inside of War Games. That would be awesome. But it could also be Rhea Ripley. You know, we thought we were getting the swan song in the Io Shirai match. And if I'm booking it, that's how she goes out. You don't see her again after that in NXT, at least until she makes a return or a special appearance at some point down the line. But they do need a fourth for war games. And I could potentially see her factoring in there, them winning. Maybe she's the one who gets the pinfall and going out on a, t- a high moment as opposed to a low moment losing a title match to Io Shirai. But the women's stuff, incredible. Like I said, Io Shirai, Rhea Ripley, match of the night, any brand. This women's tag team match, maybe second best match of the night. And then on AEW, we had a women's match that was probably the third best match of the night. So women's wrestling on Wednesday, this Wednesday in particular, absolutely dominated. We opened the show with a North American title match, Leon Ruff defending against Johnny Gargano. Gargano's promo at the top dug him in deeper as a heel. I love the way that Ruff bounces up and down and between the ropes. I'm not really sure, and I don't watch a ton of Lucha Libre, so excuse me, but I'm not sure I've really seen anyone other than Ray Phoenix do what Leon Ruff can do, jumping on the ropes so fluidly and with such ease. It's really impressive the way he does that. Uh, Damian Priest showed up again as Gargano was ready to finish Ruff. Ruff then missed a crazy diving senton like three quarters of the way across the ring and Gargano hit one final beat. It looked like he was going to win the title back, but Priest pulled Ruff out of the ring before the three count and then screwed Gargano over with a disqualification by knocking Ruff out with a stiff forearm right to the face. This was a smart way to continue the story without making Ruff a one-week champion. 
Does it devalue the title? Yes. Do I hate that in theory? Yes, I do. But the storyline is building three characters simultaneously. Like with Drew McIntyre, by the way, Priest comes off as a cool, smart, macho type of face. He's like a modern mix of the best parts of Kevin Nash and Scott Hall all rolled into one dude, but somehow more athletic than both of them combined. That's how much I like Damian Priest. I also really loved what happened after the match with Priest disrespecting Ruff as William Regal kind of admonished him for getting involved. Then Ruff shows up, he stands up to Priest, slaps him across the face. Priest came out for a match later, you know, a one-on-one match never started because he got attacked from behind Gargano. They brawled all over the ringside area until Ruff showed up and got the upper hand on both guys. He starts celebrating. Priest and Gargano both get pissed, rush into the ring together. Ruff dips out. And now he's the, you know, plucky baby face North American champion. As I said, NXT has found a cool way to develop all these characters in one storyline. I do want the title to be treated more seriously, but it seems like they're setting up for a triple threat match and a title change at War Games. I can't see a scenario where we come out of War Games and Leon Ruff is still the champion. I also think, by the way, as a side note, Wade Barrett is really entertaining, showing total disgust and disdain for Leon Ruff. He can do nothing right in his eyes. He doesn't deserve to be wrestling, let alone being the champion. It's just really funny commentary from Wade Barrett. So it does look like we have three matches set for war games. The women's match, the men's match, and a triple threat North American title match. The questions that exist are whether the men's or women's NXT titles, the main ones, are going to be defended. I could definitely see Balor going up against someone like Kushida. But I'm not sure that Shirai really has a challenger given what all the other women are doing. Now, I did mention, of course, and I I would be remiss not to say, I pegged Rhea Ripley in that fourth spot in the women's war games match. Well, the other option is if Rhea Ripley is gone and she does show up, let's say, on Survivor Series, you could put Io Shirai in there and not have a women's title match on the show. So I do think that's another option that they could go with. But at least I know for a fact we're going to get three really exciting matches. The question is, how are they going to fill up the rest of that show? Are they going to give us Grimes and Loomis? I don't know, but let me go ahead and move on now and tell you why I don't want that. Because we had Dexter Loomis and Cameron Grimes in a blindfold match. Now, admittedly, this is one of my least favorite stipulation matches that you can make. I prefer guitar on a pole to a blindfold match. It's clunky. You never really get good action. Usually someone takes their blindfold off when the referee gets knocked out. For me, this was horrible. The ref got beat up and the blindfolds immediately came off. Loomis dominated, Grimes ran away. This feud should have ended at Halloween Havoc. Neither guy is benefiting from this continuing. It was slow, it was boring. For me, it was bad from start to finish. It ended in a no contest. I don't think the match or the feud at this point is doing anyone any favors. Halloween Havoc, it worked. Going forward past that, the fact that it's continuing is like raw and SmackDown booking, not knowing when to end a feud. This was a short feud that should already be over. And look, if you want to give me one more match on TV and end it, that's fine. But if you're putting this on TakeOver, for me, and maybe, look, maybe they'll prove me wrong. For me, this is not a TakeOver match. We had Kushida defeat Arturo Ruas. Uh, Ruas returns to NXT after being in Raw Underground, having a couple matches on main event. He was even drafted by Raw last month. I like his skill, and I hope they eventually can do something to make all of this work for him. But obviously in this match, Kushida would be the one going over. 
Uh, he put the hoverboard lock in. It didn't get it done. So he tied Ruas up with an, with an awesome like pinning combination. Uh, it was good for both guys. Ultimately, Ruas was not treated like a jobber in the match, but Kushida needed to get the win and Kushida did get the win. We had Timothy Thatcher defeat August Gray. This went longer than I expected with them giving Gray some run. He lost it uh, when he went for a high-risk springboard somersault. I, I'm not even sure what the move was, but Thatcher hit a double underhook slam and then a necktie type of submission for the tap out. Tommaso Ciampa immediately came down, stared Thatcher down as he backed away. Thatcher's like, I ain't got no problem with you, Ciampa. Uh, Ciampa looked pissed. He wanted to fight. And later on, he said that's exactly what he would do. I would love to see this happen. You know, these guys go crazy in the fight pit. I don't exactly know if that's the direction that they're going to go, though. And I do have a DM slide from Chad Placinka at I Don't Exaggerate. He said, I have a little in the way for criticism of NXT tonight, but I have chosen some because Thatcher and Champa. Isn't Thatcher likely to be more on the old school side of things and the one that Champa would side with in the respect department? So what Chad's talking about is that last week, Champa cut in a promo kind of saying he hates how the NXT locker room these days gets things by complaining and without deserving it and just think that they should be given all these opportunities. And I thought that was setting up a gimmick in a storyline for him. So Chad's right. Having him start a feud with Thatcher coming out of that promo last week does not make any storyline sense. Thatcher might well be the opposite of that. Not a guy who, who you would think would complain and bitch and moan, but would do it old school by beating people up and earning his spot. So we will have to kind of see what the storyline is there. Maybe they're going away from it temporarily. Perhaps they had Champa pegged to feud with someone else and, and they're not able to do it. So they're moving in a different direction. I don't have that answer, but I do agree with you, Chad. It is a hole in logic. And when you combine that with the Grimes Loomis match, and really the Thatcher Gray match itself, the, the match, forget the Champa part, it wasn't a lot of exciting stuff during certain mid parts of the show. But I did, of course, go through and note those four big topics, those key storylines, uh, at least one really big match, that main event match, that got me excited. That got the juices flowing for a really good episode of NXT. And I would be remiss to finish here without talking about one of the final things that happened. Uh, William Regal checking on Boa at his home after he didn't show up to the PC for a week and Zia Lee has not shown up to the PC for two weeks. Boa opens the door. It looks like he has black eyes or that he's hasn't slept in a while. I'm not sure what they were going for with the makeup there, but he keeps saying she's coming. And then he closes the door in Regal's face and Regal has no idea what's going on. So we assumed incorrectly. And by the way, this is the definition of like unconscious bias. I assumed that there would be some dude, some guy who would be running this whole show and pulling the strings and stuff. Turns out there might be a higher power. It seems like they're indicating that, but it looks like it's a woman, which obviously is good. And, and you know, it doesn't help narrow down the options at all because this seems to be a storyline at least for me, based somewhat on their Chinese nationality. And there's no one else I know right now signed to WWE who has who is Chinese or who has any type of history in that regard. So I don't exactly know who this person's going to be. Maybe it's an actor that they hired, a non-wrestling personality. Maybe it's just someone that I'm not even thinking about. Maybe it is someone who is not Chinese. But I just was kind of going down in that direction because it seems like they're using so much imagery and obviously the Zia Lee and Boa connection 
is that they're both Chinese. So it's 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 just really surprising. I, I don't know what they're going to do. I'm totally in the dark about it. And I like that. I like not knowing what's going to happen. And, and that's good wrestling television. So overall, NXT, a very good show, as I said, in my opinion, the better of the two shows this week. But I mentioned off the top, I was going to be taping the show when the ratings came out. They came out just a couple minutes ago. AEW, 850,000 viewers. NXT, 638,000 viewers. So both went up. AEW gained 86,000. Their demo went up. NXT gained only 6,000 and their demo went down. That's a really bad number for NXT. And I don't get into the ratings mishmash here. I'm not going to talk about it every week. You guys know you listen most weeks at least. Uh, But it is worth noting that NXT put on what I would call a great television show. Two hours of really damn good wrestling, entertaining wrestling, with only a couple low points that I mentioned. And AEW is the one that gained 80,000 more viewers than NXT did, despite the fact that there was the NXT Women's Championship main event featuring two of their biggest stars. That's a huge main event to not draw a bigger number. I didn't expect NXT to suddenly beat AEW this week, but I did think they'd be in the low 700s and AEW would be in the 800s. Instead, they're at 638, which is granted, it's higher than last week, higher than the week before that, but you're talking incremental amounts. This is not anything significant. When NXT decides to blow it out and put on a special card, Great American Bash, Halloween Havoc, they can beat AEW, and they do, and they put up really good numbers. But the weekly show not having this much interest, it's really a pox almost on WWE for their lack of promotion for the brand. They do talk about it on Raw. Usually it gets, I believe, two mentions. But they don't really have the announcers promoted. They don't have Tom Phillips come out and say, hey, huge main event on NXT this week, on SmackDown during on Fox during a network television show. They don't have Michael Cole say, you have to tune in to NXT this week and see what's happening. They have all these channels and all these ways to promote their products and they spend all of it on Raw and SmackDown. And if you don't promote NXT, people are not gonna see arguably, in my opinion, the best wrestling of any of the four brands that exist, but at least WWE's best and most consistent product. Even if you like AEW more, you probably can agree NXT is the best thing that WWE offers. So that should be for them a really disappointing number. As a viewer of all of these shows, it's disappointing for me to see a show do that bad. And they really need to pick it up. That is going to be a long-term problem if they can't put a really damn good, huge title match in the main event and they only draw 638. And I know you're going to tell me, hey, there was an NBA draft. Okay, great. There was AEW, which is on TNT, which is an NBA channel. You know, they weren't airing the draft, but my, my point stands. Uh, they did 850. They were up 86,000. So th- it, that's not an excuse. I don't want to hear that. So let's move on to AEW Dynamite. As I said, also a really good show this week. The only thing it didn't have that NXT did have was that big storyline, that big moment, the thing that you really cared about that was getting you to tune in. But apparently it didn't matter, right? People tuned in anyway, despite not really having that. I do think though that AEW, whenever it advertises its stars, the Young Bucks in a match, Kenny Omega is going to be on there. John Moxley is going to be on there in a contract signing. Cody is going to have a match. It is pretty notable that whenever they do that, they see their ratings go up somewhat significantly. And it just goes to show that there are big stars in AEW and there's people who will tune into AEW 
for those stars. Now, the question is, will they stick around? God forbid, if a couple of them are out or injured or whatever simultaneously, what will happen to those ratings if that happens? I don't know. But when they promote that they have big names on their show, people tune in and they deserve a lot of credit for that. And they also deserve a lot of credit for booking a damn good show with a lot of those names all together on the same show. It opened with the Young Bucks defeating Top Flight in a non-title match. This was exciting. Top Flight definitely looks like a team that could be something, you know, in the long run. Still obviously green, but it was nice that they got the opportunity. Hopefully it leads to something for them down the road, whether with AEW or elsewhere. Uh, And Helico and Jack Evans attacked them after the match. So I assume Top Flight's going to get at least one more match on Dark. So maybe you'll go tune into that and see them again. Uh, Orange Cassidy defeated Kip Sabian in a singles match. I enjoyed this match a lot. It's really nice when Kip Sabian gets to display his skill. Not in a tag team match, not some gimmick stuff where he's running around, you know, with this video game thing he's doing, but actually wrestling because he's a damn good wrestler, okay? Orange Cassidy locked Sabian in the mousetrap, got the win, which was the right result considering how much Orange Cassidy has lost recently. Miro attacked after the match. Best friends came in, ran him off. I guess this feud isn't over quite yet, but it also seems like they need a third guy, Sabian and Miro, in order to do a six-man tag team match because they have issues now with best friends and Orange Cassidy. So how do you just do a two-on-two? Or do you do a two-on-three and let Sabian and Miro win? And that is how you elevate Miro into a monster type of role because they were able to win a two-on-three match. That's maybe how I would book it. I think that could be the direction that they go. We had a contract signing between John Moxley and Kenny Omega. Now, the one thing AEW does that's great, and this is more of a recent thing, they make sure that Moxley gets on TV frequently, even when he doesn't have a match or in-ring segment. What's weird here is they cut a promo that looked like it was from elsewhere. I thought he was taping it from his home or you know somewhere out in Vegas, I believe, is where they live. But then within the same hour, he did a contract signing. So maybe I just misunderstood what was going on. But I thought he was gone. He was taping it. He wasn't doing the show. He wasn't going to be on it. And then all of a sudden, I come to find out there's a contract signing. He also, in his promo, cut, it was good, but he casually announced, just as he's speaking, uh, uh, talking about Omega and fighting and all this type of stuff, casually says that Renee Paquette is pregnant. That's incredible news. Very happy for the both of them. Obviously, we are big Renee fans on this podcast. Certainly John Moxley fans as well, but big fans of Renee. Just such a typical Moxley thing to do, to casually throw out, yeah, you know, my pregnant wife, right in the middle of a wrestling promo, he's probably going to do like the gender reveal simultaneously while having barbed wire like scrapped across his face. It's a boy. Some reason, something like, he'll he'll do something like that. Uh, Moxley's a character and that was just funny. I popped for it. Fans were really excited. Congratulations to John and Renee. Hope the baby is happy and healthy whenever it is born. Uh, Omega came out to the ring for the contract signing. He did an intro that, again, was over-the-top, exaggerated, and pretty funny. It's clear he's getting arrogant, full of himself, getting a big head now that he's a singles wrestler again. He looked like a million bucks all suited up. He actually kind of looked like a early 90s, late 80s drug dealer <laughs> more than anything else, but he had the cleaner glasses on. He's he's there. He's getting ready for Moxley to come out. Turns out Moxley got attacked backstage and is unable to sign the contract. So the first thought, of course, is Omega attacked Moxley. Maybe not. Maybe another member of the elite did. I happen to think 
it might be Hangman Page. We'll find out, but that is the Silver King's guess. Uh, Omega starts cutting a promo as he signs the contract, refers back to Moxley backing out of the first time that they were scheduled to fight because of MRSA, and this time said he wouldn't let him back out. Loved the attitude from Kenny, really liked the segment, and everything they did really with Moxley and Omega has been pretty impressive to this point. Now that we know, though, that Renee is pregnant, it does kind of make you wonder, well, when did that happen? Uh, did that have any contribution to her decision to step away from WWE? And or could it contribute to John Moxley dropping the title to Kenny Omega December 3rd at, on AEW Dynamite, which is going to be a huge match? Is the reason this match is happening so quickly because that is their goal? That's what they need to do. All good questions. I hope we find out. Hope we speak to Renee at some point and can get some of those answers as well. Would love to interview her. Uh, up next, it was really a couple different segments on the show. The Inner Circle in Las Vegas. The gimmick of Wardlow and Jake Hager constantly staring at each other pops me the entire time. I also enjoy Chris Jericho and MJF constantly trying to one-up each other with first it was ordering steak, now it was ordering different proofs of alcohol. This was overall though, outside of those two things, it was mostly bad comedy. And if you liked it, that's fine. It was corny. If you like corny comedy, it was for you. Conan randomly shows up, smokes them out in a limo. Uh, they start beating up random locals at a bar. They played off the Hangover movie with MJF acting like Alan and all the guys waking up all screwed up and hungover. They find Hornswoggle, I guess, instead of the tiger. Uh, Jericho was randomly on commentary after that segment for a minute, and then he was gone. I kind of expected there to be an additional part where there was gonna be that punchline that really hits you and you laugh, oh my God, that's so funny but I felt like the punchline never actually came. So I appreciate the effort, but this has fallen flat for me. Really the last couple things with MJF and the inner circle have fallen flat. I loved the match at full gear. I thought it was really smart. Some of the stuff beforehand I thought was really good. Ever since, uh, I don't know. It's not really hitting for me. I'm interested to see what direction they're gonna go, how long they allow this to last. Clearly there's dissension within the ranks. So is there going to be a match? Will MJF get kicked out in short order? Will that lead to a different type of feud? Things I don't know, but I am kind of almost in the mode of I want them to get on with it. Like I want to know what the next step is. Uh, we had an NWA Women's Championship match. Serena Deeb defeating Thunder Rosa uh, to retain her title. So no surprise, by the way, this was a well-wrestled and exciting women's match. Yes, did they save the only women's match for that same 90-minute mark on the show? They did. But it delivered this week. It was a damn good match. And they gave it a little bit more time as well. So if you're gonna do it in this way, then make it less offensive. Less offensive is putting on a damn good women's wrestling match. Britt Baker attacked Rosa during the match, but she still was able to kick out of a powerbomb from Deeb. Eventually, Deeb caught Rosa with a modified fairy tale ending and got the win. This is definitely one of the better AEW women's matches to date. Undoubtedly, the match of the night on Dynamite it came, if you want to say it this way, on the wrong quote unquote night, compare it when you compare it to what we got from Io Shirai and Rhea Ripley, that was a far superior match, but that was also an incredible match. It was one of the best matches of the year, at least from women. Uh, that blew this away, but that doesn't matter because Rosa Deeb was a great match and it was a great television match for AEW to see women get that type of spotlight. Again, 
get that type of time, get that type of booking where you bring Britt Baker into it. Now we're getting Britt Baker back on television, presumably in a feud with Thunder Rosa. These are all very positive things. We also earlier saw Jade Cargill attack Brandy backstage, stomp on her arm with a chair. I don't really have more to say about that. That's really just all that happened. Later on, John Silver and Anna Jay said that she gets a title match now with Hikaru Shida because she's in the top five. And okay, that's fine. Again, the AEW Women's Championship, not treated as importantly with storyline development as the NWA Women's Championship. None of that makes sense. But I do like that we're getting Hikaru Shida on a television match against someone in Anna Jay, who honestly, I'm kind of curious to see how much she has or has not potentially uh, improved. So this is all good. It's positive momentum for the women's division. That's what we like. You know what I'd like to see AEW? I'd like to see a women's match in hour one for a change. Mix it up. Surprise me, right? Do something different. I did miss this. This actually happened before the women's segment. So I'm attacking it slightly out of order. Uh, Pac in his first match back uh, from exile almost in the United Kingdom defeated Blade. I'm sure there was a good reason for them changing it in reality, but I was really looking forward to Pac versus Eddie Kingston here. They almost kind of, they did mention it. So credit to AEW for not ignoring it. Uh, I think Kingston said that Blade went up to him backstage and said he wanted to be the one to fight Pac and they went to Tony Khan and Tony said it was okay. I'm guessing the reason is because now they want to do Pac Eddie Kingston on December 3rd to make that a super episode of AEW Dynamite. But if there was an injury reason or something else that happened, that would make sense as well. But look, sometimes in wrestling, you advertise something and you're not able to deliver it or you change your mind for one reason or another. So does WWE do it too much? Yes. Um, But it happens everywhere. This is proof that it happens everywhere. Nevertheless, these guys, Pac and Blade, tore it up. Butcher tried to interfere a couple times, but Pac overcame him, eventually hit a shooting star press into a brutalizer for the submission victory. I was glad he didn't do the black arrow because I kind of want him to save that for Kingston and a guy who needs that to be, to get finished basically for lack, trust me, I get the connotation there for lack of a better term. Um, Nevertheless, I, I was very happy to see Pac have a great match with Blade. Blade impressed me and get the win. After the match, Phoenix ran down to save Pac, who's being attacked from the family, whatever else you want to call Butcher Blade and Eddie Kingston, only for Penta L0M to run down and play it like he wasn't sure what side he was on, only to realign with Death Triangle. They ended up playing this really well with Eddie Kingston kind of forming that family, only for it to disintegrate as soon as Pac was ready to come back. It didn't make much sense for them to keep them separated from him. Death Triangle was something that was just getting started when the pandemic began. So the fact now that it's back together, they're gonna roll, that's gonna be really interesting. I would not be surprised, by the way, especially when you look across all of AEW, talking about you know the Nightmare Family and Dark Order and Orange Cassidy and the Best Friends, uh, Death Triangle, whatever this family group is, and there's others. SCU is another good example. It really seems like AEW needs to create a six-man tag team title. I just don't know why they wouldn't at this point. They have so many different small groups. There's a couple larger factions, but they have so many small groups that it makes so much sense for them to do it. Tag team wrestling, despite, yes, I criticize them for not following the rules, the wrestling, the action, the excitement, the entertainment is their strong suit. 
So doubling down on it, especially if there's a new television program and maybe making a six-man tag team title that's either exclusive to the program or just adds another division, I think would really get more people involved and get people excited. And then we had the main event, uh, Brian Cage and Ricky Starks against Cody and Darby Allen. So before this began, they had to give us something else with Darby Allen. He's sitting on top of a church, I think it was, in a video package. And then he rides a skateboard through the church. And then he's standing there, the TNT titles on the ground, and his leg is lit on fire. That's it. I'm not being flippant. That's every single thing that happened. And seriously, we're at the point now where I wonder, what the hell are we doing with Darby Allen? Zero point zero. Good wrestler. Seems like he might be a good character. Interesting looking dude. The gimmick, the video vignettes, it does not work for me. Maybe I'm out of touch. Maybe I'm old. It's possible. I don't think I'm that old. I'm not over the hill yet. I'm not washed, as Brian Campbell would say. This just doesn't work, Darby, for me. It just seems endlessly stupid. Nevertheless, the match was good. Awesome spot with Cage suplexing Darby Allen and Ricky Starks simultaneously. This was totally, by the way, a tornado-style match, even if, you know, rules-wise it wasn't. These guys were all in the ring without tagging basically forever. Darby hit a great Yoshitanak on Cage. He got a 2.9 count. Cody hit Starks with a crossroads. Then Cage annihilated Darby when Cody ducked out of the way uh, from, I think it was a a clothesline. He hits Cody with an Olympic slam. Cage then beats Darby, the brand new TNT champion, with an avalanche drill claw, which is his finisher, not the avalanche part, the drill claw. On one hand, it took an avalanche version of his finisher just to beat Darby Allen. And Cage and Starks have needed a big win for weeks, a truly big win. This was one of those. On the other hand, it wasn't that hotly contested of a match and Darby eating the fall as the brand new champion is what we always complain about WWE doing. Why would you have your brand new champion lose immediately in a non-title match? And the answer generally is to set up a title match. But that is trite. And you feel like with Brian Cage and, and Taz was out there talking about rankings just a couple of weeks ago, Being on top of the rankings, he could easily get a TNT title match. So the booking was correct on one hand because Cage and Starks needed to go over. But I probably would have put them over Cody. I I, I guess that's what I would have done if I was booking it. I know why they wouldn't or didn't. But Darby literally just won the TNT title and you're already having him lose. So I do suppose that Cage will now get a TNT title match. I also assume that Darby will win it in an upset fashion to get the victory back. After the match was over, Team Taz attacked Cody and Darby. So Will Hobbs ran in with a chair for the save. They all ducked out of there. Hobbs found the FTW title just kind of laying on the canvas. He raised it. But as Cody kind of went up to him to thank him, Hobbs drilled him with the title and joined Team Taz. I always love a good swerve. And this was definitely one of them. Hobbs actually fits with Taz best out of all three of the guys. He fits better than Brian Cage does. And he fits way better than Ricky Starks does, who does not need someone else to be his mouthpiece. So to me, it's a welcome surprise and a damn good piece of booking for them to tease us with this Will Hobbs thing and then kind of almost hit us over the head with it and say, yeah, we're not only are are we, you know, finalizing it, are we paying off the storyline, but we're doing it in a way you did not expect. 
So kudos to AEW for that. So look, I got a couple DMs after last week's show. You're too hard on AEW. Well, guys, I tell you what I like and don't like. I loved Full Gear. I did not like last week's episode of Dynamite. This week, I really liked it. And I'm going to be honest every single time. I tell you every show, WWE, NXT, AEW, what I like the most and what I don't like. Guess what? It's all cyclical too. A lot of you who have been listening to me from the very beginning on the first wrestling podcast I was ever on in this corner, I trashed WWE constantly. And then it started doing certain things a little bit better. And guess what? Ahead of the pandemic, we didn't have the podcast. It wasn't really operational yet. But on the audios that I was posting on Twitter, I was trashing WWE because the storylines were pretty crappy. But ever since the pandemic started, WWE has stepped up. It's done a better job, not a great job, not a perfect job, but a better job. NXT is rolling. AEW, for the most part, is rolling. So when these things are great, when they're good, when they're bad, when they're terrible, I always will be honest with you. I'm gonna tell you exactly what I think for better or worse, and it continues here. Now, folks, that is it for the AEW and NXT podcast where we broke down everything from Wednesday night. As I said, there's still a lot of exciting stuff to come in the getting over wrestling podcast world over the next few weeks. I'm not going to run down the list, but what I will tell you is this Sunday ahead of Survivor Series, we will do a very special live Survivor Series pre-show. I will send out the links so everyone can get involved in that. Right now, I'm thinking maybe 6 to 6.30. That way, if there is a pre-show match for Survivor Series, everyone can watch it. You don't have to listen to me talk while that's going on, but it'll be in that 6 p.m. Eastern hour ahead of Survivor Series. More important than that, we will have WWE Survivor Series instant analysis as soon as the show is off the year. You guys know what we do, instant analysis style. We crack a beer and we talk about every single thing that happened on the pay-per-view from start to finish and all the gory details, all the praise, all the hate, whatever it is, we bring it to you. Also, do not forget to check us out on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We will have a pre-show poll so you guys can tell us what you expect heading into Survivor Series and we will have a post-show call so you guys can tell us what your final grade was for Survivor Series. As I said at the top of the show, huge month of December coming. 100th episode, awards, tons of stuff that is going to be happening. I'm excited to bring it all to you. Thank you all for listening to this week's edition of the Wednesday Night Wars episode, I guess, of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back Sunday night the Survivor Series instant analysis that only leaves three words left for the Silver King to drop on. Bye for now.